Hello, and welcome to the Orthopod. My name is Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a medical student at the University of Melbourne, and this is a podcast where I'll take a history from experts in orthopaedic and musculoskeletal medicine. Professor Natalie Sims is a bone cell biologist and the head of the Bone Cell Biology and Disease Laboratory at the St Vincent's Institute of Medical Research. Natalie completed her PhD at the University of Adelaide in 1995 and soon after became a research associate at Yale University School of Medicine before returning to Australia in 2001 and now leads the Bone Cell Biology and Disease Laboratory at SVI. Natalie is internationally recognised as a leader of bone research and her laboratory studies the cellular interactions responsible for development, maintenance, and strength of bone, with the ultimate goal of discovering new treatments for conditions such as osteoporosis and arthritis. Natalie is also involved at an editorial level for many top bone and endocrine journals, and is the past president of the Australia and New Zealand Bone and Mineral Society. Welcome to the Orthopod, Professor Sims. Thanks, Liam. It's good to be here. Thank you. So the human skeleton consists of about 206 bones. There are long bones, short bones, flat bones, and others. Then there are two types of bone. There's trabecular or cortical bone, each with a different mechanical function. Bone is also considered a composite material. With all of this considered, you're an expert in bone. How do you describe what bone is? Yeah, that's a great question. The The first thing that I think people need to understand about bone is this fact that it's a composite material. Um, And so what that means is it's made up of many different components. And the two biggest components of the skeleton are collagen, which makes bone soft. So you know you've got collagen of all different types throughout your body. There's the collagen in your skin and the collagen in your ears. But the bone collagen is is a different type of collagen. But like all those other ones, it keeps bones flexible. The other part of the the material which is really important is the the mineral crystals. And so this, as you know, people generally know that there's calcium in their bones and the calcium is in basically little little rocks. It's a substance called hydroxyapatite or really called bioapatite. And that material also exists in rocks. And that's what makes the skeleton hard. So we need to have this balance between flexibility and hardness. Now, there's a whole lot of other things in the skeleton as well. So there's also water inside your skeleton. There's lipids, so fats in your skeleton, and lots of proteins that get released from the skeleton that control other functions within the body. And when you've got all of these sort of different functions that bone has, for example, just something like standing or running, mm-hmm. how does weight transfer through cortical and trabecular bone? Right. So the main way that weight will transfer through is both through the material itself but also through lots of very small pores that are within the bone. So the the bone tissue, I think the the best way to think about it is if you think of wood. And if you cut through a piece of wood, you can see that there are lots of pores through that that air can go through. And it's the same with the skeleton. We've got these tiny pores that go through the skeleton. Fluid moves through that or undergoes pressure changes within that. And that's also the way that weight transfer happens. A cortical and trabecular bone, how are they different in that regard? Like trabecular bone, uh, it's porous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what does that actually mean? Like how is trabecular bone different to cortical bone, I guess, is my question. Yeah, so we might back up a step so that the listeners can understand what trabecular and cortical bone are. So the cortical bone is basically the stuff that you can feel. It's the hard outer shell of your skeleton, and that's a really dense structure. It's very thick. 
and it's got these pores, but they're inside the bone material itself. The trabecular bone is is more like a honeycomb network. So if it's if you bite into an aero bar, that's a good example of that. You've got the cortex on the outside with the, the dark chocolate, then the green spongy stuff in the middle is like the trabecular bone. And so the trabecular bone is surrounded by bone marrow. So it's quite a different substance. Um, but the actual material is exactly the same in trabecular bone and cortical bone in that it's got collagen and that it's got mineral and that it's got these little tiny pores all through it as well. And if we go even deeper under the microscope, for example, there's three cells in bone. There's osteoblasts, osteoclasts and osteocytes. What can you tell me about these cells and their function? Yeah, so this is where I start to get excited about bone. So bone is dynamic and it's constantly changing. And if you take away nothing from this podcast take that away that your skeleton is always changing and this is because of a process which is called remodeling and this is one of the processes that I study what happens in remodeling is it's just like remodeling you know your your house renovating your house is that little bits of bone get removed from the skeleton by these cells that are called osteoclasts so they destroy the bone and then that bone that's been removed gets replaced by osteoblasts that form the bone. So there's this constant renewal process happening in your skeleton by the coordinated actions of osteoclasts taking away the bone and osteoblasts putting it back. And in the middle of that, there's also these cells called osteocytes. And what osteocytes are, they're cells that actually sit inside the hard bone material itself. And they look, they look a lot like what we think of as how brain cells look. So they've got these thin dendritic finger-like processes that reach throughout the bone to connect with the others. And these processes sit within the canals that are full of fluid. So those are the, the three main cell types. The osteocytes for many years, we really didn't know what they did. So when I was an undergraduate, we were taught they were just these cells that sit in the bone and maybe they're dead. Like no one really knew what they did. Now we understand that these cells produce signals that tell the osteoblasts and the osteoclasts what to do. It seems that they're the cells that say this is the piece of bone that needs to be remodelled and changed and they also can sense when there's a a change in activity within the bone because they're in those fluid-filled canals. So they're the brain inside the bone? (laughs) They are absolutely the brain inside the bone And, and one study I was involved in some years ago which was a lot of fun was working with a mathematician to to sit at the and look at the imaging data that we have about osteocytes and work out really how many of them there are in the skeleton and we worked out that if you think about the average body inside your skeleton there's about 42 billion osteocytes within your body making what is it 23 trillion connections with each other so it's basically the same order of magnitude as the brain and we don't understand it we don't know what it does we don't know how these signals are made what they respond to and how they control the turnover of the skeleton and keep it healthy and they also have a role in mechanoreception is that right absolutely so because these cells are sitting inside these fluid filled canals when you walk or go through your daily activities they can sense the changes in pressure within the canal and we know that that changes the the genes that they express so they'll produce different proteins depending on how much activity you have in a very localized way and when when the body's aging mm. um, you know and we'll get to osteoporosis later but what happens as you age with regards to the function of osteoblasts versus osteoclasts like when we're taught about these things at university you sort of think about it 
maybe as a ratio, the mm. the osteoblasts are doing a little bit more than the osteoclasts or something like that. And when that balance is changed, that's some sort of disease. Right. Or maybe there's a process like cancer going on. So how does ageing affect that ratio? So if you're thinking about a healthy skeleton, so someone who's young and active, the remodelling cycle is balanced. So the amount of resorption equals the amount of bone formation. As we get older, the amount of resorption dominates and gradually throughout the skeleton, these tiny little bits of bone that are getting remodelled, the balance is a little bit off. And so over time, because they're not filling up the pits as well or there's more osteoclast activity than osteoblasts and more resorption than formation, gradually the amount of bone in the skeleton reduces. So you're, you're exactly right. It's, it's the balance between these two activities that becomes a problem with ageing. And what about something like bone cancer? What's going on there? Yeah, bone cancer is, is a little bit different. So what happens when, for example, when breast cancer metastasizes into the skeleton is that they, the breast cancer cells induce the production of osteoclasts, so these bone-destroying cells. So, and this is a process separate from remodelling. This is destructive bone resorption. And a, a similar thing happens with rheumatoid arthritis, for example, if it's not treated. The continuing inflammation causes the cells to induce formation of osteoclasts. So they're, they're both things where the skeleton gets destroyed in a way that it shouldn't be doing because we've got these invading cells that are making the osteoclast form. Yeah, so diseases like cancer, the ratio changes, it's, all, it's, out of, it's uncontrolled and yeah. there's certain types of tumours like breast cancer, it could be lytic mm-hmm. where the, the bone is, is reduced or something like an osteosarcoma where the bone is uncontrolled growth. Like right. Maybe a bit easy to understand for people when you're thinking about it. Uh, a tumour mm. and that's a really complicated process what sort of work do you do as a bone cell biologist to sort of understand those processes like I can see behind you there's a couple of complicated looking diagrams for example <laughs> making sense of how everything communicates if we go even deeper from you know we've thought about trabecular and cortical bone mm. now we're thinking about at the level of genes mm. how do you guys investigate those sort of interactions yeah so the the work that we're doing is trying to understand the signals that the cells within the skeleton produce and how they respond to other signals because if we can understand them then we can work out which signals need to be interfered with to make bone healthier so a, a model that we use a lot in our laboratory is using animal models of bone disease. So we might discover that there's a particular gene that we think is important in controlling the, the strength and the structure of the skeleton. And what we do is we knock out that gene in the cell type that we're interested in. So at the moment, one of the projects we're working on, we've deleted a particular gene in osteocytes, so this network of cells within the bone. And by deleting that gene we find that these mice have bones that look normal, they look great, but they're really susceptible to fracture. So it's very easy to break them because the collagen and the mineral are not in balance anymore. We've got too much mineral, which means the bones become brittle. It's a little bit like osteogenesis imperfecta, and so those bones break more easily. And that tells us that these cells don't only control how much bone is there, they control what the quality of the bone is like. So that's led us into a new way of understanding how bone strength is controlled, which means in the future we might be able to target that pathway to actually change the strength of bone without having to deposit a whole lot more bone. We could just take what's there and make it stronger. Incredible stuff, and I would encourage anyone listening to check out your 
profile at the St. Vincent's Institute or there's a YouTube channel which uh, I've seen you give a few talks on and there's also the Melbourne Bone Group meeting I think in November 22nd That's um, right. that you can come along and have a listen to some of the more uh, advanced sort of discussions if you're interested to hear about what's going on at the, at the top level in research of bone. So bringing it back to sort of the clinical level and, and you know, someone like my mum and dad listening to, to understand, what, what, what is it when someone has a DEXA scan? So that's dual energy X-ray absorptiometry, and you're measuring peak bone mass. Um, but what, is, what does it actually mean, and, and how do you interpret the findings of a DEXA scan? Yeah, so a DEXA scan is, is at the moment, the, the best clinical test that we have for predicting whether someone is likely to have a fracture. And what it's actually measuring is it's, it's really a combination of how much bone is there and what the quality of the bone is at the tissue level. And we know that if someone has a, a very low what's called a T-score or sometimes a Z-score, depending on who's looking at your scans, that can predict whether you're likely to have an osteoporotic fracture. It doesn't always predict it. If you have a, a low score, it doesn't mean you're going to fracture, but it means you're more likely to fracture. And similarly, if you have a good T-score, you still might fracture, um, but it's the only predictor that we've got at the moment for telling whether someone really is in trouble and should consider having some treatment for their osteopenia, which is uh, osteopenia or osteoporosis. So I I need to sort of say what the difference is Mm. between the two of them. So osteoporosis is is a term that you might have used, might have heard, and that's when someone has a very low T-score, so they're most likely to fracture. But then if we think about the band of people who are a little bit above that, so they've got a slightly low T-score, they're, off, they're classified as being osteopenic, which might mean they're on their way to getting osteoporosis or it might mean that's just where they are. So they're slightly more at risk as someone who has a normal T-score. And you said it's the only or the best tool that we have available. There might be other tools out there that cost a lot of money and are not necessarily effective to employ or even feasible at say in a clinic or at a population level but maybe are used in the research laboratory for example what what, what are the other ways that we can use to measure bone uh, bone density yeah but before we get onto that it's probably worth mentioning that it is the only measurement tool that we've got where you can measure a patient but there are also risk calculators which are on the internet that people can access as well so there's a website called know your bones and you can put in information like that, like if you've had a DEXA scan, you can put that information in. But even if you haven't, you can also consider things like your age, your uh, whether you've had a fracture in the past, and those sort of things to calculate whether you're likely to have a fracture as well. So that's also out there. In terms of what we can measure in the lab, because we're, we're able to look at bones that are not inside somebody's body anymore, we can look at the material strength of the bone by using a whole range of other methods. So we can look at how much is there at the microscopic level. So we can use a, what's called a micro-CT and other labs use a nano-CT. So this is a CT scan, but at very high resolution. So we can see the trabecular and the cortical structure that we talked about before. And then we can get it at an even closer level. We can cut sections, we can look down the microscope, see the osteoclasts and the osteoblasts. And then we can also use infrared light to look at the material quality. So we use the Australian synchrotron out at Clayton to look at the actual structure of the collagen itself and of the, um, the balance between how much mineral and collagen is there. And people with a normal DEXA scan can, of course, still get a fracture if the force is great enough. 
but that force may be able to be withstood by some people as opposed to others. So what are some of the other things that bone scanning doesn't measure which contribute to bone strength? Yeah, this is a great question and something that we're really actively working on. So as I mentioned, the DEXA scan is, is kind of a combination of how much bone is there and, and what the quality is. It's, it's called a bone density scan, but it's not really a bone density scan. It's a surrogate marker. So what we can actually do is really look at what the density of the material is and also determine how the material is distributed. So it's kind of the easiest way to think about it is if you think about your femur, so your upper leg bone, it's basically a tube. And you can imagine if you've got a piece of piping, which is essentially what the tube is that's your femur if you're not looking at the two ends, how much material you have around that pipe makes it stronger or weaker. So how hollow it is, how thick the material is, whether the material is distributed evenly compared to the force that the body undergoes is also something that we look at. So these are the type of questions that we're asking here. And if you consider someone's bone mass, there is going to be a level at which a given force will overcome the strength of their bone and cause it to fracture, something like a fracture threshold. Mm. So why is it that people with osteoporosis have a lower threshold for fracture? What we know the most about is, is that we know that older people will have a lower bone mineral density and it's mostly because they have less bone mass. And that's, that's the main cause of osteoporosis and that's because of this imbalance between resorption and formation that we talked about before. As well as that, it seems that people who are older, their bone is more porous. So we talked about the small pores that the osteocytes sit in, but there's also large pores where there's bone marrow and these pores get larger as people get older as well. So it's, it's not only that there's less bone there in the skeleton, it's also that it's just not distributed the right way for weight bearing anymore. And then the third thing, if we look at the really microscopic level of the material, is there's, we think that there's also probably an imbalance between the amount of collagen and the amount of mineral that's there as well. And does this bone loss affect some parts of the body more than others? Like we know that, say, in older people, for example, hip fractures, maybe there's fractures of the the spine that can get picked up uh, on an X-ray without even knowing that someone had that. Does that mean these parts of the body are more susceptible to osteoporosis or is that not really something that has truly been discovered yet? Because I'm not too sure about that. Yeah, and look, I'm not too sure about that either. I don't know if we know the answer to that. We certainly know that there's a change in fracture patterns and that reflects more fracture susceptibility, which is determined by how people fall. Whether the whole skeleton... Probably the whole skeleton loses bone with, with osteoporosis because the whole skeleton is undergoing turnover. But whether some parts lose more bone than others, I don't think we really know. I don't think there's the data out there to tell that. Yeah, and, you know, even in my first question, there's long bones, short bones, flat bones, mm-hmm. irregular bones. There's all this, there's different types of bones, so it would be a bit difficult to just say that something affects everything when there's all different types of bones, and then there's, of course, cortical and trabecular bone. Yeah. But one thing that's attached to bone is, of course, muscle, mm-hmm. uh, and we, we know that we should be advising uh, older people who are at risk of fracture to strengthen their muscles and that may present sort of obvious things such as they're going to be able to be stronger to hold themselves up Mm -hmm. Uh, and if there's you know bigger muscles that may even cushion a fall 
Um, so how does sarcopenia, so there's osteopenia, osteoporosis. I don't know if there's sarcoporosis. I guess there probably is. But sarcopenia is, is, is a medical term that means that someone has got less muscle, or, you know, if you think about it like bone, less muscle density. So how does sarcopenia contribute to osteoporosis? Yeah, so we know that sarcopenia and osteopenia are associated with each other. So someone will tend to have both. And we don't know if that's because both the muscle and the skeleton degenerate over time or if it's because of the relationship between the two. So we know that we, we were talking before about, about physical activity and how forces that go through the skeleton help maintain the skeleton. It's also the activity of, of muscle cells and the way they pull on the skeleton that also maintains the skeleton as well. Um, the, the idea of, of using weight training to increase the skeletal mass really came out of old studies, which I think are really fascinating, um, studying tennis players and baseball pitchers, where they found, in particularly in tennis players, you think about the impact that they have on their um, dominant arm. These studies showed back in the, in the 1950s and 60s that they had more bone in their dominant arm. And so they had stronger cortical bone, in their usually their right arm compared to their left. So that's the first evidence that we had that doing weight-bearing exercising or um, impact exercises is going to increase the strength of the skeleton. And it's been something that's been studied at length ever since then. But certainly we, we now know that high-impact weight exercises are good for the skeleton, but looking after your muscles is good for stopping you from falling as well. So you've both got the benefit in terms of looking after how much bone is there, but also making sure that you fall less often as well. And not to mention all the other benefits that exercise brings. Yes. You know, you get to look not big and bulky and feel good about yourself. <laughs> so I'm sure I'm, my mum's very keen to get into the gym and start competing in bodybuilding, all those sort of things, <laughs> which come with her risk of fracture being decreased. Considering, let's just continue with my mum, I'm sure she's not going to be bothered by the fact that she's, uh, I'm divulging clinical information, she's... 60-something, so she's gone through menopause. So mm. how does menopause affect fractures? Right. So oestrogen protects the skeleton is the, is the basic answer. So as oestrogen levels and progesterone levels decrease with the menopause, those protective factors are lost. And it means that the level of osteoclast activity increases and there's a very sudden drop in the amount of bone that's present within the skeleton after menopause. So women kind of get this double whammy of both ageing and this quite um, dramatic reduction in sex steroid hormones as they go through menopause. I mean, oestrogen is also important for the male skeleton as well, and the decline in oestrogen and testosterone in men as they age also contributes to age-related osteoporosis, but they don't have this... A period of time where the skeleton changes very rapidly like women do and that's one of the reasons why women are more susceptible to osteoporosis than men because of that decreased estrogen that's right and and what exactly does estrogen do to bones yeah so estrogen oh, that it's a very long and complicated question so actually my phd was looking at estrogen oh, effects in wow. bone and then some of the postdoctoral work i did when i was at yale was looking at estrogen receptors in bone and how they work I think the current status of how we think oestrogen works is that it inhibits the formation of osteoclasts. 
So when you remove that inhibitor, more osteoclasts form. There's lots of layers of complexity on top of that because there's different estrogen receptors and they appear to have slightly different roles. But that's the basic thing is that it's, it's an osteoclast inhibitor. Mm. And this is why, why hormone replacement therapy can be really beneficial for women because it does protect their skeleton from that increase in osteoclast formation. Yes, and you know, talking about the, the subject of, of therapy, mm. so and we mentioned earlier about cortical and trabecular bone, and, and you were saying how cortical bone becomes more porous with aging, but in trabecular bone it's more susceptible to osteoporosis. So when we're thinking about fracture, anti-fracture therapy, which part of the bone is being targeted? Yeah, I don't know if I'd use the word targeted, because I think when all of the anti-fracture therapies that we've that have been developed and are now being used, the idea of targeting them to either trabecular or cortical bone was not part of the design of the therapies. But what we found is that the therapies are most effective against trabecular bone. And that's because when we study the skeleton, we can see changes in trabecular bone much more rapidly than we can in cortical bone. And that's because it has a really big surface area because you've got this porous structure and if you're able to inhibit all the osteoclasts on that surface, that's going to protect all of those surfaces. Or even better, if you can increase the number of osteoblasts, you'll see a change in that structure much more quickly. So if you think about that aero bar we were talking about before, if you were to sort of dip the porous part of it in a bit more chocolate, you'd see all the holes would cover up much more than if you put the same amount of chocolate on the cortex of the aero bar. Lovely. I love aero bars. I mean, it's, it's funny you mentioned that before and I've thought that's, you know, when you think about ways to sort of talk about things to patients, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. it's genius. <laughs> so does that mean there's more research conducted on trabecular or cortical bone in, in the lab, for example? Yeah, in, in our lab, we've certainly shifted to study cortical bone more than trabecular. So because all of our treatments have evolved from the study of trabecular bone, they're more effective in treating trabecular bone. And so that means they're really good at preventing vertebral fractures. Um, They perhaps don't perform as well as we'd like at at preventing hip and wrist fractures. And these are obviously the the worst fractures. A hip fracture is far more damaging and costs a lot more to repair for the patient and the hospital system. So we're trying to find out ways that we can protect the cortical bone better. And that means this is one of the reasons why we're looking into the material quality of the bone, because it seems that that's more important in the cortex than it might be in the trabecular structure. Mm. And one of the big breakthroughs in anti-fracture therapy, if we could just go back to that, mm. is the, the biologic drugs, which mm-hmm. are, of course, also very expensive. Yeah. Um, so drugs like denosumab, and I'm sure there's others out there um, that people may have heard of before. So denosumab is Prolia, I think mm-hmm. that's the trade name of it. Yeah. So what do these drugs do? What is it that makes the biologics so much better than, say, drinking more milk? Well, the thing is, is that they particularly target the cells. So when we're talking about denosumab or prolia, that's an antibody. So anything that ends in mab is going to be an antibody. That's an antibody that directly stops the formation of osteoclasts. So you're inhibiting these osteoclasts from eating away at the bone. And it inhibits the same protein that's used within the body to stimulate osteoclast formation, both in remodeling, but also in metastatic cancer and in arthritis so that same biologic agent can be used to inhibit osteoclasts in multiple conditions that affect the skeleton 
So the reason why they're so successful is we know that they're acting directly on the cells, whereas something like having having more calcium in your diet, it's great if your cells are there and they want the calcium, but if they don't want the calcium, it's not going to do anything. So, But a biologic will actually be able to change the activity of the cells. Right, okay, that's interesting. So we've talked a lot about osteoporosis and the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare estimates in their most recent studies that uh, about 924,000 Australians have osteoporosis, which is about 3.8% of the population. However, osteoporosis doesn't have any symptoms, so it's going to be underdiagnosed, and so the actual number is probably even higher than that 924,000. Osteoporosis is also a preventable disease. You know, we were just talking before about uh, things like diet, having more calcium, etc. And if you have a fracture, quality of life is obviously going to be severely compromised. So what public health campaigns exist for osteoporosis? Not enough. Um, <laughs> so so there, are, there are two organisations that work to promote a public health awareness of osteoporosis. Actually, there's three now. And so that's Healthy Bones Australia. That's the Bone Health Foundation. And I think the other one is called Musculoskeletal Australia. Um, and it's a competitive space, public health campaigns. And I think that... Um, it requires a lot of money to get your message out there and I think those organisations have far less funding at their base than organisations like Cancer Council, for example, or the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. They're much bigger organisations, so that's a problem. Um, but they are getting their message out there. Whenever I see a, a you know an osteoporosis campaign, I get very excited because it's like finally a message is out there. Lack of awareness about osteoporosis is a real problem. The general public do not know that it exists. They don't know that looking after their bone health is important. I think when, when I talk to people who have osteoporosis, I tell them they need to complain more. I think one of the problems that we have is that osteoporosis is a condition that predominantly affects the elderly. And it's not that it only affects the elderly, there's also osteoporosis in young people too. Uh, but old people don't complain. There's a lot of people who are out there and they're in pain and they don't talk about it because they see it as a normal part of ageing. I think we need to move beyond that and start really accepting that, that osteoporosis is a painful condition. It is, um, it is also fatal for people, and that's something that people don't understand. And uh, I didn't tell you this before, but on my desk is a photo of my grandmother over here behind this, and she actually died of a hip fracture. And so I keep her photo on my desk to make sure that I remember why I'm doing this. Um, she was, she'd had polio, so the different era, and that obviously had detrimental effects on her skeleton. And uh, she'd had a, a shoulder fracture and then some years later had a hip fracture and within 24 hours she died. So that keeps me going, keeps me motivated. But people don't know that an osteoporotic fracture can lead to death. But even if it doesn't, um, having people live for 20 years longer being in constant pain because of osteoporosis is not something we want to do. So I, I think we really need to get that public health message out there and I don't know how to do that. You know, we just need money and people to do on, work on that, really. Mm. Yeah. Well, hopefully things yeah. like this podcast can you know, let people know about the importance of something like that. And yeah. you said polio. I, I imagine yeah. that's probably a risk factor for fracture, it seems. Yes. What are some of the modifiable risk factors for osteoporosis? So the things that are modifiable are lifestyle. Yeah, so activity, healthy diet, particularly um, in childhood, because what, what, what we need to do is make sure people have a strong skeleton when they're a young adult. 
So eating eating calcium during childhood but also protein is really valuable because those to make the collagen, which is a protein, the cells need protein to make the protein. So that's helpful activity, just healthy lifestyle things. Mm. And genes, good yeah, genes good is genes. also part of it. Yes, yeah. and obviously think, you know, avoiding things like smoking. Correct. Uh, and in, in terms of kids, it seems like it's, it's very valuable for, say, kids that play sport, mm-hmm. kids that are strengthening their bone when they're younger. Is that, is that right that that has a benefit? In, in older life? Yes, yes, because if you if you have a greater peak bone mass or a peak bone strength when you're young, you'll maintain a better skeleton as you get older. We can't we can't avoid losing bone mass as we get older, but if we got more to start with and we can slow down the progression of bone loss, it is better. Great. Professor Sims, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a very informative discussion about bone health and bone science. And thank you for joining us on the Orthopod. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Orthopod. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by the handle at somagradgroup or on our website somagradgroup.com. See you in the next episode.